Hello and welcome to another episode of Whole and Complete Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Shantae, and this is the podcast all about faith and wellness, loving God, living well. We are coming to the very end of the line. We are about 30 episodes in. We have been chugging along since February. I thank you all so much for being with me from the launch all the way to the end of this season. I can't thank you enough for your support for your ratings, your reviews, for sharing this podcast and just continuing with me throughout this season. We are in the middle of a series, the last series of season one, talking about battling addiction. And so before we get into that, just a reminder that the wellness retreat tickets are available. So that virtual event is open for registration. If you want to take advantage of that, please head to readytobelieve.com. But without further ado, let's get into the second part of this series. So our guiding scripture for this part of the series is 1 Corinthians 10, 4, which says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning earthly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So today we're going to be talking about a battle within a battle. You're not the only one and coping mechanisms. So let's talk about the battle within a battle. So just to refresh your memory Addiction is defined as a brain disorder characterized by compulsive engagement in rewarding stimuli, meaning it is a reward pleasure to the brain despite adverse consequences. And so compulsive refers to that irresistible urge to do something that you feel like you cannot control it. In our last episode, we talked about the battle of addiction with respect to what happens in the brain, the compulsive irresistible urge to keep searching for that reward stimulus and how it's not just limited to drugs and alcohol, but so many other areas of life. But even with that, addiction is so much more than that. Eventually, your body gets used to the high. So whether you're addicted to drugs or addicted to shopping or addicted to sex, pornography, eventually that reward stimulus begins to kind of level out. And so the things that used to satisfy that pleasure center in your brain don't do it anymore. And so what happens is they increase the dose or they increase the risk or they keep upping the ante because what used to do it doesn't do it anymore. And so what started as one thing can easily morph into another. This is how they talk about gateway drugs, how one drug seems pretty harmless and benign, recreational from time to time, but that opens up the door to other drugs because once your body gets used to it or your brain gets used to it, the high is not the same. But more than that, addiction is a battle within a battle. It is a battle within yourself. And when we left off the last episode, we talked about that component of shame. So not only does shame keep people from seeking help, but it also impacts their ability to stay clean. Relapse is very common in addiction. So when someone gets better and they go a while without any issues and then they get triggered, Often what happens is they relapse, they go back and engage in that same behavior or into that substance. And the shame from that can be emotionally overwhelming. So instead of taking it as an isolated incident, excuse me, as an isolated incident saying, you know what, I made a mistake. This is not who I am. I have the ability to start again. It can turn into this self-hatred, this self-loathing and this emotional, emotional spiraling 
where people feel like all of their progress is gone, that the addict is who they really are, that they're a failure, and they get so disappointed in themselves and so hurt by the relapse that it sends them looking for a way to medicate that pain. So now they're looking for a way to medicate the shame from the relapse, and it becomes a vicious cycle. So not only is this a brain battle, not only is it a behavior battle, but it's also an emotional and mental and spiritual battle. So to give you an example, think about all of the times, you know, if this may not apply to you, but I'm just saying, you know, think about all the times, you know, you went back into the arms of somebody that you said you was all the way done with. Like, oh, this is the last time we don't get along. I'll, I'll never speak to this person again. And then lo and behold, you know, you find yourself back with that person. And then those familiar toxic dynamics start reappearing in the relationship. And when the relationship crumbles again, we beat ourselves up, you know, oh, I'm so weak. I was dumb. This is what I get. This is what I deserve. I was so stupid to trust and all this other type of stuff. And none of that is the truth. None of that is helpful. We have the power to choose our response to setbacks, to relapses. And wallowing in the mud of our misdeeds is never a good idea. Just like if you're on a diet, if you eat something that is contrary to your weight loss efforts, you don't throw in the towel, you start over. So just because you ate the ribs doesn't mean you go and get the box of donuts. Like let's not compound the issue. So we need to learn to be what I've said many times on this podcast. We need to learn to be metacognitive. We need to retrace our steps to interrogate our actions and our thoughts and analyze what might be happening in our lives that triggered the setback. So that means thinking about who you've been spending time with, what shows you've been watching on TV. Sometimes storylines from a show can trigger something in you, social media influences, how you organize your time, even the notifications that come to your phone or how late at night you allow yourself to be accessed. So, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, there was this song, The Freaks Come Out at Night. Google it, you'll find it on YouTube. But there was just kind of like this belief that after a certain hour that no good could come after a certain hour. So if your phone rings in the middle of the night, no good could come from that. And so maybe the time of night that you're allowing people to have access to you, you know, can easily trigger any number of things. Um, you have to look at how you're sleeping or things that you might be avoiding. All of these things can trigger a relapse, a setback, and earlier in the season, we talked about coping during COVID and how loneliness was a major factor for people. So loneliness in and of itself can also trigger addictive behaviors, relapses and setbacks. So what all this means is it's not enough for us just to exist, just to try to get by day by day trying to survive. You can't let life live you. You have to live life, which means paying attention to all of your feelings and your emotions. And lastly, this is a battle within a battle from a spiritual perspective. There is a spiritual battle. The enemy will use any weakness to exploit any deficiency that will make you self-destruct. When the Bible says no weapon formed against you shall prosper, that is the truth. And then you think to yourself, well, how come so many people, you know, have fallen into these terrible circumstances? He said no weapon formed. So that means the weapon will be formed, but ultimately you have to be the one to yield. You have to be the one to tap out. You have to be the one to give in to it, to that impulse or to that defeat. 
So the enemy will use any weakness, exploit any deficiency to try to make you self-destruct. He will plant seeds in your mind that will make you feel like you are beyond redemption. That is too late for you, that you are a total failure, that you are a shame, that if people knew what you really were, they would turn their backs on you in a minute. And that's just not the truth. That's just not the truth. The Bible calls him a liar, calls him the father of lies. So you have to remember the truth. And the truth is that Jesus already factored in all of your shortcomings and your frailties when he decided to give his life for you. That's the part that you need to grab a hold to. That's the part that that you need to hook your anchor to. He decided to die fully aware of who he was dying for and what you were capable of. And the part of the Bible where it says, you know, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I want you to think about all of the ugliness and degradation and evil in this world. I want you to think about what was in that cup. Jesus said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But it was not possible. The only atonement for that level, the height of that sort of degradation and ugliness and filth and evil and sin in the world was a blameless lamb, a perfect sacrifice, which was Jesus. So no, it wasn't a pleasant experience, but he had a choice and he decided to die. So he looked in the cup, saw all of the addiction and the abuse and the trauma, all of it, and said, I'm going to fulfill my mission. So you have to keep that in mind, which brings us to you're not the only one. So another part of addiction that doesn't often get talked about as much is this notion that addiction affects more than just the addict. And people use that to justify the addiction. I'm only hurting myself. It's my life. I can do what I want to do. I'm not hurting anybody else. And that that is just not the truth. Addiction, no doubt, is self-destructive. But it also has destroyed families. People's lives have been ripped apart by addiction. Marriages broken up by gambling addictions, retail addictions, drug and alcohol addictions. How often have you stopped to think about how drugs and alcohol were viewed in your own family? Did people condone certain behaviors? Were there certain family members just known to be, you know, that black sheep who always had a bottle or a joint or some dice or whatever? Think about how we justify certain behaviors in people that we love. You know, do we turn a blind eye because they kept a job and brought home a check and paid the bills? Do we feel like it's none of our business that we need to stay in our lane? Do we feel like the pot calling the kettle black because some of our own behaviors and tendencies like, hey, I'm not perfect. So who am I to be telling you what you need to be doing with your life? And I try not to be insensitive to the opioid epidemic because I really do feel for the families that have lost loved ones to opioids and painkillers and and overprescriptions and trusting doctors and things like that. I have so much empathy for that aspect of it, but I can't help but wonder where was this outpouring of support and economic resources when black and brown people were strung out 
on crack in the 90s. You know, now we have a national health crisis. But in the 90s, we had this 90s national crime epidemic, you know, this this super predator and the same empathy that was needed in this crisis was needed then as well. But instead, black and brown people got shame. And so we continue to compound that and it affects so much more than just the person struggling with addiction. And nowadays we live in this age of moral relativism. So moral relativism basically means to each his own. Who am I to judge? Do you boo? But as believers, okay, so as believers of the Bible, the Bible says that when we see our brothers and sisters overtaken, okay, or caught up in something, that we should go to them in a spirit of restoration and love, not judgment, not condemnation, or even worse, apathy, which means you don't care at all. So if you go look at Galatians chapter six, verses one, I think maybe through three, you'll see that, hey, when our brothers and sisters are out there on the struggle bus or you see them with a slip showing or or struggling in some way that we're supposed to go to them in a spirit of restoration, like, hey, come on back to the fold. Let's let's I got you. Let's let's do this together. And the Bible specifically says in those verses, don't come with a judgment haughty attitude because the Bible says you might get caught up. So don't come over there riding over on your high horse like mm, look at you. The Bible says you need to come humbly <laughs> in love in a spirit of restoration, but we can't afford to just be like, hey, do you boo? We are our brothers and sisters keeper. And that doesn't mean that we have to play the role of savior. Jesus did that. Jesus paid it all. So we don't need another savior. You don't need to put on a cape, but it does mean that we have to recognize the wider spread impact of addiction. And if you are the one struggling with addiction, if you are in a dark place, the people that love you are in it with you, whether it's your intention or not, whether it's drugs or a bad relationship, the isolation, the dishonesty, the withdrawal from the people that you love creates pain and sacrifice for them as well. Which brings us to coping mechanisms. Luke 15, four says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Trying to battle addiction without some system of support is unwise. Okay, I'll say it like that. The shepherd goes looking for the lost sheep because without a network of support, that sheep is lost to the wolves. Addiction and the shame that comes with addiction is so isolating and it only grows with silence and secrecy and judgment. So asking for help is one of the first and best steps that you can take, whether you are addicted to drugs or June bug, stop suffering in silence and reach out to somebody that you know cares enough to help you and support you in your journey. Prayer and spiritual support has also proven to be one of the most effective tools for battling addiction. And I say this not as Oprah and walk away, but the Bible encourages us to pray together that where two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them. The Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So going back to our guiding scripture for this part of the series, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning they're not earthly, 
but spiritual for the tearing down of strongholds. It says in Christ actually. So our power is through Christ and there's nothing too hard for God. Addiction is a stronghold and many people, many people, many Christians have succumbed to it, but it doesn't mean that you don't fight with everything that you have. And as believers, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. So never be too ashamed to go to God for help. And not only should you go to God for help, you should go to God with support. So this is why a lot of times with narcotics anonymous groups, they have what they call sponsors, somebody to watch over you, somebody to be in partnership with you, somebody who knows your struggle or has been there and done that and has overcome this obstacle. But I can't think of a pro a program proven with the results that these have that say, Hey, go out there by yourself, follow steps one, two, and three, and good luck with that. No, it requires some level of accountability and you have to be willing to be accountable. Another strategy or coping mechanism that has proven to be helpful. I once attended an online support group for addiction and they used something called the 54321 strategy. And it's basically a mindfulness exercise. So it's like acknowledge five things that you can see around you. So it could be a pen, a tree, a bird, uh, four things that you can touch, three things that you can hear, two things that you can smell and one thing that you can taste. And the idea behind that was that when you felt the urge to use drugs or alcohol or to gamble or to spend money or whatever your struggle was, that when you felt that urge that you would focus and shift your mind to five things you could see, four things you could touch, three things you could hear, two things you could smell, one thing you could taste. And it shifted your mind away because remember, these are synapses firing in the brain that are wanting you to use, okay, or to engage in certain behaviors. And so when you shift the brain activity to something else in a more mindful and present activity, it helps to manage the urge. Box breathing is something else that has been used. This has been used to manage anxiety, but also to manage the anxiety that comes along with that compulsive urge. So box breathing is you breathe in for four counts, one, two, three, four, and you breathe out for four counts. And then you breathe in for four counts and you breathe out for four counts. And so as you're breathing, think about yourself drawing a square in one, two, three, four, out one, two, three, four, in one, two, three, four, out one, two, three, four. And with each breath in and out, imagine the square or the box, quote unquote, being built. And it's just a way to just kind of slow down shift the oxygen in your brain <laughs> to try to control and manage those urges. And there's a ton of mindfulness activities out there. Even on, I saw on YouTube, there is something called, I want to get this name right, EMDR. And it's basically you just kind of follow like a ping back and forth across the screen to just focus your mind on that. And it comes with a whole host of other activities. You have to be specially trained to do it. But all of it is about rewiring, creating different neural pathways and circuitry in your brain so that you begin to control the urge and the impulse to want to use or engage in activities that will cause you to relapse. Now, before I left this series, I did want to share 
an addiction story with you. And I'm going to kind of try to summarize here, but I saw this not too long ago on in the New York Post about retail addiction. And it says this, at the height of her shopping addiction, Lisa, a 56-year-old registered nurse, had blown through her and her husband's $10,000 of savings, taken out three clandestine loans, so secret loans, and accrued $50,000 in credit card debt. Another thing that the out-of-control spending cost Lisa, her marriage. She talked about her struggle during Black Friday and just that compulsive urge to want to shop and get the deals. And she said, I lied to my dad. I got him to co-sign for a loan. She bought her son a $1,000 football signed by Tony Romo. She bought her nine-year-old daughter a $1,200 diamond and ruby necklace. And it says, drowning in debt, crippled with guilt, Lisa eventually confessed to her husband. He was horrified by his wife's spending and the couple divorced in 2002. And scrolling down because it's a a much longer story, but she says she maintains that her issues stem from an unhappy childhood in which love was expressed through material things. Gifts were the love language. My mother was narcissistic and emotionally immature. So I say all this and she does overcome her addiction. She went to a support group and she learned instead of giving quote unquote gifts at Christmas, she would do service gifts. So she would go and help somebody with their laundry or she would help somebody clean out the garage or she would just help somebody like, what do you need help with in this season? And she would offer service rather than buying expensive gifts. But I say all that to say it, it really brings everything full circle that it's not just drugs and alcohol. It's not just random that more times than not, it's rooted in something else. So addiction can be a symptom of a larger issue, some other unresolved trauma, like we talked about in the first part of this series. It also underscores the fact that it's not just you. You know, when you are addicted, it brings in other people of your family and it it creates dynamics of distrust and dishonesty and it can just unravel your entire life. And so if you are struggling, there is no condemnation. There is no judgment. There is no shame. There is so much help out there and available. And I encourage you to reach for it, which is why on our next episode, I will be bringing a woman who is near and dear to my heart. Uh, She is a friend. She is a former addictions counselor, and she also has her own story to share about how addiction has impacted her own family. And so on our next episode, Jamelia Hand will be available to discuss her experience with addiction and just kind of give you that frontline viewpoint and touch on that aspect of it that we haven't already covered in this series. And so if you have any questions, comments, takeaways, you know, you can always hit me up at Dr. Shante says, I really want to support you in this journey. I know that addiction may not be your thing, but you might know somebody. So it's not just about what is happening to you. It also is about what's happening to the people around you. And if you can just plant the seed of recovery for somebody, I think it's worth that effort. So I will see you guys on our next episode. I'm looking forward to bringing in our final guest. So it will be our season finale. We will finally wrap up season one. And I certainly hope to see more, many more of you on the virtual wellness retreat, which is happening at readytobelieve.com 
on September 19th. And I will see you guys next time.